it's not hard to find a welcome in Ireland. But if you want to fit in... We have an ish culture. Things will be done nine-ish. Music might start at 9.30-ish. We're like white Jamaicans, very laid back. So if you can handle that, you'll fit in very nicely. Coming up, we'll find out just what it means to be authentically Irish. You'll find a lot of character in the lyrics to their folk songs. There's always a joke in Ireland. We say, you know, anything about Irish music is about death, misery, depression, and unrequited love. But if you want to chat with the band next time you're enjoying a jam session at a pub... You don't go over to them when they're finished with a tune and say, oh, that's a great song, do you know Danny Boy? And a guide from Belfast tells us what people keep asking her about her city's reputation for trouble. You know, is a bomb going to go off, that sort of thing? No, those days are behind us. Dive into the world of traditional Irish music. Get pointers on how you can be like the Irish and discover what Belfast wants to show you. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. They say that all the world loves to be Irish for St. Patrick's Day. But is your image of Ireland still driven by clichés, you know, Darby O'Gill and the little people? Or have you had a chance to actually experience the soft lilt of Ireland in person? We're about to get schooled in how to be more authentically Irish, including how to endear yourself to your Irish hosts. And we'll learn how to get beyond the clichés and into the soul of the Irish people through their music. We'll also update our impressions of Belfast with the help of a hometown guide from the north later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. To surround yourself with the traditional music and arts of Ireland, I've found the rocky Dingle Peninsula to be the perfect setting. The Irish language is widely spoken there, and folk music traditions keep Irish history and legends and clever turns of phrases alive and well for all of us to experience. When he's not leading Irish tourists around his home turf in Dingle, Dara Herlihy keeps customers up to date on the latest Irish tunes at his family's music store. And musician Kathy Ryan was raised by Irish immigrant parents near the old Corktown neighborhood of Detroit. She's returned to live in Ireland to fully explore her heritage. Kathy was the lead vocalist with the American Celtic group Cherish the Ladies, and she's released several of her own CDs over the last 20 years. Dara and Kathy, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thank you very much. Dara, first of all, you're from Dingle, and you're, you're from a long line of musicians in your family. What is it about music and Ireland? I, I mean, when you think about traveling, I don't think there's any other country where music is so important. Yeah, I think when you think about um, Ireland, it's always associated with music, and uh, I think the reason for it is probably because of our, our long history, when you look at our, our history regarding Britain, and I think the, the Irish music tends to bring Irish people together. And for us, it's a social outlet whereby we can both celebrate and uh, be sad or so on and so forth. And we express ourselves through music. And for Irish people, it's something that's very close to our hearts. So it brings you close to your your rich history then, really? In it really does. If you analyze or if you dissect any of our Irish songs, there's always a joke in Ireland. We say, you know, anything about Irish music is about death, misery, depression and unrequited love. And we say it very sarcastically. But the truth is that if you dissect or analyze any Irish song, there's, there's always a sense of lament or love or loss of some kind which depicts our history. And I think through our songs, we, we express ourselves as, as a people. And it goes from generation to generation. Your, your family is a long line of musicians. What's the song your dad taught you that is particularly important to you? Um, I suppose there, there are many, but um, I suppose some songs like in the Irish language is which to me is a, a song that my family sings and Cathy would know extremely well as well. It's a political love song written in the 1800s. And then there's Teddy O'Neill, which is probably one of sing, the first... Sing the, uh, just, just a phrase of the political love song, can you? Okay, so it's Seamalach Mielamar. Seamalach Mielamar Seamalach Hezer Gilamar Suunnashen Nivuris Heng Wow, now, I don't have any idea what the words were, but I got a sense the words were really heartfelt. Kathy, what were the words? What was the meaning of that? Uh, I'm going to leave that to uh, Dara because his cousin Brendan Begley taught me it, and I feel I'd be dishonoring Brendan. Oh, all right. Basically, it's a political love song written in the 1800s, so it is, he is my warrior, he is my fast one. He, you know, he is my unforeborn love and my, my life is not love. the same without him. He is my gallant warrior. Yes. And uh, wow. it's a song about a, a gentleman who goes off to war and his love is left behind him. And the music is a lifeline. It was a lifeline to the Irish in the diaspora 
because it was the way they stayed connected to home, the way they stayed connected yeah. in their own communities, whether it was Australia or Canada, America. Some nostalgia about it. And also, it was the lifeline of the Irish during the penal laws, Absolutely. during many invasions. Yeah. I mean, it was the... It's a sort the, of resistance. To exactly, sing is to yeah. exist. Absolutely. Yes. To sing is to exist. Yeah. It's a, the spirit of yes, the Irish. If you want to bring it in into life song. in Ireland, make it illegal. <laughs> so, Irish <laughs> is illegal. Let's, let's have a revival of the yes, Irish language. <laughs> and the English could never figure that out. <laughs> no, could they? they couldn't. They just didn't Keep figure banging, it out. Make it so, stronger. So, Kathy, your parents emigrated to yes. Detroit, right? They did. My mother is from Kerry, same county as Dara oh, here, uh -huh. and my father is from Tipperary. But and you live back in Ireland. Yes, I moved back to Ireland about 15 years ago. I lived in Ireland as a child as well. My mother took us out of Detroit because her whole family, no one immigrated from her family to America. My father had a sister and two brothers okay. in America. So family was Ireland to me. So I, when I had reared my son and he was all properly launched in the world, I said, I can live wherever I want to. And I went back to Ireland. But now you're an Irish musician who grew up in America. Does that put yes. you at a disadvantage in Ireland? Because everybody else grew up in Ireland. No, not at all in Ireland. It's funny. It put me at more of a disadvantage in America with the gatekeepers of the Irish festivals and Irish culture here you know, I remember once being told we oh, so wanted, they get, wanted a real Irish singer. We want singer, a real Irish singer, right? Yeah, and Irish Americans, right? They thought you should be singing in a pub. And I thought, no, I want to sing on a national stage. I want to do it <laughs> the right belong. way. But in Ireland, no, if you have an integrity about your music and you really are coming from a very honest, immersed place, they welcome you with open arms. They yeah. love music. Now, Kathy, you're traveling with your bolron, yes. your, your drum. And I'm when I go to a pub in Ireland, I'm so enchanted by this. Can you just introduce us to this beautiful drum? It's a round frame drum. The frame is about five inches deep. It has a goat skin that's soaked in lime for about six weeks, and then it's stretched onto this drum. It was played usually on Stephen's Day, day after Christmas. Sean O'Reilly brought it into arrangements of traditional music around 1960 or so. Okay. And then it just took off and people like Planksty began Was oh, that right? It so it's, their, a, it's a rather new part of traditional Irish music. in arrangement, Because yeah. it looks to me like a giant tambourine without the jangly things. Ex oh, well, very good. It's You're very good at this radio <laughs> thing, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you stretch it with one hand behind the brace and then you... You drum it with like this... Uh, it's called a tipper, okay. and that's what distinguishes... I mean, all cultures have a frame drum. The Native Americans use deer skin. You'll find it in Israel. You'll find it in Italy. Just different skins, deer skin, cow skin. The Irish distinguish themselves in their playing of it because they use a stick. It's also a cheap instrument. As instruments go, you can teach yourself how to play it. <laughs> Usually you'll find way too many barroom players at sessions. <laughs> yeah. We try to limit ourselves. <laughs> so, yeah, bring, bring, only bring, one bring your instrument. Everybody <laughs> brings the rules in Ireland is one procession. That's <laughs> right. One born Anymore procession. Anymore is too many. Hey, Kathy, can you sing a song that fits with your drum? Yes, uh, just about any song except for Lament or a Slow Air mm -hmm. would fit with the Bauron. But I'll do one that I particularly like. It's from Belfast. I got it from the singing of Noel Lenahan. And it's called Johnny Be Fair. Well, Johnny be fine and Johnny be fair, he wants me for to wed. And I would marry Johnny, but my father often said, I'm sorry to tell you, daughter, what your mother never knew. But Johnny, he's a son of mine, so he's kin to you. Well, will he be fine and will he be fair, he wants me for to wed. And I would marry Willie, but my father often said, son of mine, so he's kin to you. And I won't tell you what happens at the end. We'll have to go to Ireland to figure that <laughs> one out. Wow. <laughs> We're joined today on Travel with Rick Steves by Kathy Ryan. She's been a leading force in traditional Irish music since the 1980s with six CDs to her name. She was also the lead singer for a woman's ensemble called Cherish the Ladies, led by Joni Madden. Kathy now lives in County Louth in the northeast corner of the Republic of Ireland. And she also leads group tours in Ireland. Her website is kathyryan.com. That's spelled C-A-T-H-I-E. And if you're ever in Dingle, you'll probably get to meet Dara Herlihy in person behind the counter at the Dingle Music Store. He also guides tourists and hosts intimate Irish folk concerts in the store so that locals and visitors can mingle as they enjoy live music. In this modern day and age, when so much is changing and almost nothing is sacred, I'm struck by how resilient traditional Irish music is in the popular youth sort of scene. I think that there's been a great revival of the Irish language, particularly in the last couple of decades. Um, there, there are numerous reasons for it. I mean, if you, if you date back to the penal laws in the early um, 1900s and you talk about the 
the lack of popularity when it came to the Irish language. In other words, you know, you were considered to be backward if you spoke Irish mm-hmm. or you considered to be backward if you danced. So anything that was associated with Irish or Irish speaking was considered to be a negative thing. So many loving Irish parents would raise their kids intentionally not speaking Irish just to give them an economic break Precisely, in the future? yeah. And even if you look back at Cromwell's time, and mm-hmm. Cromwell said one of his famous sayings was to, to hell or to Connacht. And the idea was that if you were going to hell, you were going to the backyards of the back arse, or so to speak, of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, you would have areas that spoke Irish. So it was associated through English with being something extremely negative. And uh, I think from this, people, you know, they learned that in order to speak Irish, that they became more educated going forward. And when they learned about education and then the younger generation have really brought Irish music back into popularity. Oh, there's an explosion of it now. You can Absolutely. get a degree in Irish music now in trad music. When I first started mm. back in the early days in the 80s, uh, which doesn't seem very long ago, but for Irish music it was a long time. Number one, there weren't that many women performing in bands professionally. Mm-hmm. Cherish the Ladies was one of the first all-female ensembles. Now they're regular. They're, mm. they're, it's and the, if you look at the, the grants now. available to young people yeah. and there are so many motivators taking taking, taking it and moving it into the future. Precisely. And but taking I think it a lot of that level. happened in America. A lot of yeah, it happened absolutely. in the diaspora, especially with Irish dance. When you look at river dance, Michael Flatley and Jean Butler were students so in that America. energized the scene in, in Ireland? A hundred percent. I love it. You know yeah. what it did for the first time? It told Irish dancers who were dancing for Coltus Cultorierne, who were dancing at yeah. Flas every, cool. every year, you can make a living at Absolutely. this. You can make proud. a living yeah. at it. Yeah. You can actually go out in the world and stand on stages all you over no the world and make a living. You no longer have to be ashamed. Living. So taking no. it one step further, trad music is doing well and the Irish language. How Hugely. Are, are as many people speaking uh, Gaelic this generation as two generations ago? I think there's more people speaking Irish. I think what happens if you look at the Irish language traditionally, you know, again, we'll talk quickly about the penal laws and the ban of the Irish language and the the ban of Irish culture. Essentially, what happened is that there was a serious grant against the Irish language. And then later on, we came the famine. Famine came in 1846. We had a mass immigration and a mass amount of deaths. You had over two million people, you know, disappeared off the face of the planet, so to speak. And as a result, the Irish language disappeared with them. Um, so the language and the culture was tailspin. Oh, I think they were and trying then, to exterminate it. Yeah. I think that's yeah. very clear. Yeah. And in the last 50 years, we have this mass rejuvenation of the Irish language. And mm-hmm. let's be proud of our culture. Now, don't get me wrong, it's still focused in, in particular areas in Ireland, certain mm-hmm. pockets of the country. But again, it's really cool to speak Irish. Well, there's a radio station now. There's a television station Gaelic. in Irish. My mother spent several nights in prison fighting for the Irish language. When I was a child, there were no Irish programs on television. My mother said, I'm paying a television license. Unless my children can watch Irish programs, I'm not paying my television license. Good woman. So good for your mom. <laughs> and good good for us. Good for my yeah. generation. Yes. <laughs> Thank goodness. You know. We'll look at the best places to encounter traditional music performers in Ireland in just a moment. Plus, we'll get tips on how you too can be like the Irish, no matter what your nationality. It starts with knowing which of their rivals you can joke about and which ones you can't. And later in the hour, a guide from Belfast tells us about the highlights of Northern Ireland's capital and why you should get acquainted with the entire island of Ireland. 877-333-7425. That's our phone number at Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic-sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. For such a small country, Ireland certainly nurtures a prolific art scene enjoyed by people from all around the world. We're exploring the important role that traditional folk music continues to play in Ireland right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests are Dara Herlihy from the Dingle Music Shop, 
The Dingle Peninsula is an important area for Irish language and culture, and singer Kathy Ryan may have been born in Detroit, but her family roots are all Irish, and now she makes her home in the northeast corner of the Republic of Ireland. I'm impressed when I go to Ireland, when I watch TV in Dublin and I see some show in the evening and here's the equivalent of a pop star, which is a traditional musician. The next day I go out to Doolin and he's performing in a little pub. And that's the accessibility of it, this small island. You're on TV one moment and then you're out in a village Absolutely. pub. Just from a practical travel point of view, uh, Dara and Kathy, you think of Doolin, Dingle, Ennis, Galloway. Where are the meccas for traditional music in Ireland? I think you've named a load of them there. Ennis, Belfast also. Belfast, Belfast has a great traditional Irish music scene. Absolutely, nice. 100%. Lots of great musicians live but there. But would you be going to an green pub or an orange pub? Well, they'd be mostly Catholic, but there are a lot Catholic of Protestants pubs, playing yeah. trad music as well. An One awful thing I'll say them. about Dingle, and I mean, obviously I'm biased because I'm from there, but obviously oh, being Dingles. from Dingle, I'm huge into the Irish scene and I'm big into Irish music. And there's one reason why Dingle is particularly famous for Irish music or particularly why it stands out is because musicians are paid better in Dingle, which mm-hmm. is a major factor. If you go because to Dublin, tourists? I'm, I'm not so sure if it's because mm-hmm. there's tourists, but I guess because there's more of a culture. There. You probably mm-hmm. have 20 internationally known musicians all living, working, or from. We got to say, yes. Dingle is an amazing creature it's because it's a tiny town with must be 10 pubs that are famous for live music, and you can walk the circle every night and enjoy live, every night quality music. So, just a quick review. Dingle is a famous tourist destination, my favorite town, lots of music there. Doolin on the west is famous, it's almost a crossroads, but it has some great pubs. Ennis, Ennis is out fabulous. by Galway. Galway, yeah. I found very nice. And, of course, Dublin and, and Belfast, if you know where to go. So yes. anybody planning a trip to Ireland, those would be places where you look for music. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Irish folk music, talking with Dara Herlihy and Kathy Ryan. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Dave's calling in from Winston-Salem in North Carolina. Hi, Dave. Thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. And uh, my wife and I have both had the pleasure of having a local music society that has brought a lot of Irish musicians in the past. I've had many years of being exposed to people like Andy Irvin and the Bothy Band, and uh, so we, we very much enjoy that. And one of the things we wanted to ask, though, is uh, do you just sort of blunder in there and uh, sit down? Or, I mean, what it's are, a great what are question. We forgot to mention Dublin as well. Dublin yeah, is a great, yeah. great town for music, especially the Temple Bar area. If I may take that one, yeah, you just blunder in. Um, you just walk into a pub and you sit down. And I think a group who are gently actually... Gently blundering. Yeah, gently. Like, yeah, don't go bashing into the session. And if you know the music, the people playing the music know that they're being respected. And it makes it more of a magic night. You know, and you, you don't go over to them when they're finished with the tune and say, oh, that's a great song. Do you know Danny Boy? Like, <laughs> that would be the absolute wrong thing to do. But I think that if you go into any pub uh, where there's music and sit down and listen and throw up a request for a song or a tune, if you know it, if you've been listening to Annie Irvine, you must know loads of tunes and songs. Yeah, uh, there have been many wonderful tunes that uh, we would enjoy hearing. Is there a, a way, a good way other than... Uh, probably sort of social media, which I'm not too adept at, to finding out, you know, who's playing when, where, when you get to these towns, or just sort of start asking. When you, when, you, when you get to anywhere, I mean, if you get to Dingle, you go to your local music store, they're going to know exactly what's happening. And mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. when you get to Dublin, go to your local hotel, and they will always know what's happening, particularly in the, in the, the larger tourist areas. When you get to Doolin, you've got two bars. It's a simple question that you ask people. Um, you're a local taxi driver. You'd be amazed how much information you get from the locals. You just got to be heads up. That's good travel. I was, even Absolutely. in Scotland, I, yeah. I found that you just ask at the hotel or you walk down the street and you, you listen. And if you're in one place that's famous for music and it's just not happening, go to the next step place. outside, no. find another. Yeah. Because sometimes a place that's famous for the music will have a dull evening and a hotel that rarely does, it'll have a great session going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Uh, so you need to be on the, on the ball and kind of flexible. Hey, Dave, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. I am so excited about reminding people you are so welcome when you step into a pub and if you are just... Grab a beer, play the boot or whatever you call it when you're tapping your foot, or you can play the 10 pence coins, or you can uh, just sit, sit along and, and uh, enjoy What I enjoy often the find, magic. and people sometimes get offended by this, is they pop in and they have their five-string with them and they, they're ready to join a session. But if you're in a town like Dingle, and, and sometimes yeah. you, you can't be offended because these are highly paid musicians that yeah. are there for an organized evening, and their job is to drive the gig and to make sure everybody in the room is enjoying themselves. So sometimes they can be a little bit slow to let you join until nice. they know you're left. Now, you can have a thriving, rocking, traditional Irish evening, and all of a sudden the mood changes, and there's a sort of a 
a magic that descends on things, and it's time for a lament. Kathy, mm. can you explain what is the lament all about? Because I just find it chillingly beautiful. Laments really, um, I think Ireland uh, for centuries was a country that couldn't really express its sorrow, and it was expressed through song. Even at funerals and wakes, there would be keening women who would come and sing um, at the one who was deceased, sing of all their great deeds, their bad characteristics, all of it, and the chorus would be a chon, a But a lament is really a crying out for someone who's gone, uh, and it could also be for a way of life that's gone. But it's a true expression of sorrow, and it allows everybody in the room to feel that pain. Um, one of the things I love about Irish traditional singing, it's an art that conceals its artfulness. The best Shanlos, old-style singers in a community, are not necessarily wonderful singers. They may sing below the pitch or above the pitch, but they take you somewhere. They take you out of the room. You nailed it. I was trying to put my finger on what is so magic about being in an Irish pub for a lament, and it's the past and present right now at the same time. It's usually a cappella, right? There's no other instruments. It's a single singing tradition, except on Tory Island off of Donegal, where there's group singing, but it's not harmony singing. Is it a man or a woman, or usually a woman? A man or a woman. Can you just one... one, um, I'll sing a bit of the Lament of the Three Marys, which would be uh, one of the great Auron Moor, a big songs. idea what the words were, but I'm just so touched by that song. That was Gaelic, right? It was in Irish. Uh, yeah. In Irish. Uh, a lament can be English or in Irish? Yes, it can be both, Either but way. most of the great laments, the Auron Moor, yeah. are in Irish. That particular song uh, is uh, the lament of the three Marys. It's about the day that Christ was crucified. Mary can't find him, and she goes to Peter the Apostle, and yeah. that's the verse I was just singing. And she says, have you seen my bright love, McGraw-Gal? And he says yes, and he's amongst his enemies. So she calls to her two friends, the Marys, the two Marys, and asks them to join her to find him because she hasn't his bones to keen him. And she finds him, they find him together, and they approach him, and she can't believe that it's her child. He's so transformed by pain. And she says, are you my son? And he says, hush, little mother, don't be sorrowful. And she says, your cross is too heavy for you. Let me carry it. I'm your mother. And he says, no, little mother. We each must carry our own cross. So there's a real message that people can take today. That's the, that's the beautiful thing about Ireland. Irish people are so close to their history. It's like they lived the famine or they lived the great immigration or they yes. lived the, the atrocities of Cromwell or, or whatever. And in all those sorrows, you find some piece of life that bit of life, that bit of wisdom that tells you we each must carry our own cross. And that hope? Yes, and it is. It's about living. Kathy and Dara, it is my hope that travelers, when they go to Ireland, can get away from the commercialness and the shrillness and experience the musical dimension of your beautiful culture. Thank you so much for being here, and, and best wishes with your music. Thank you very Thank much, you. Rich. When you visit Ireland, there's likely to be no shortage of opportunities for conversation with the locals. And we're talking with some of them today on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's get some inside info now on just how the Irish describe their own national character. Joining us are Barry Maloney. Barry leads walking tours of his hometown Kinsale in County Cork. And Stephen McPhillamy, who hails from Derry in the north and now operates a bed and breakfast on Dingle Harbor. His B&B is packed with stories of its former owner, actor Robert Mitchum. Stephen and Barry, it's nice to have you back. Thanks, Rick. Great to be here. Great to be here. So how would a tourist be fitting in with the culture? What's your advice to really connect with Ireland? I think any tourist to Ireland who wants to fit in with the culture needs to have a good positive attitude. We're not really a whinging, moaning type of society. We get on with things and 
we get things done. It won't always be done sharp or always completely punctually. Germany's there if you want that. We have an ish culture. Things will be done nine-ish. Music might start at 9.30-ish, and if you can handle that, we're like white Jamaicans. <laughs> we're very laid back. So if you can handle that, you'll fit in very nicely. Just a good positive outlook and... Don't be afraid to sing a song in the bar if somebody asks you. No one cares if you're a good singer. Just give it a lash. You've nailed it, you know. Go ahead and sing. Make a joyous noise. Squint into the mist and say, ah, it's a soft morning. It's beautiful weather. Great day to be alive. And uh, don't be that punctual. I remember I'm usually on a very demanding schedule. And when I get to Ireland, you got to relax. Barry Maloney, what cliches about your Irish heritage are true? And, and what cliches are misunderstood, would you say? Well... I suppose the typical cliche of the Irish is the drunken fighting Irish, you know? Right. And the Irish can live with that one, I guess, to up to a point. But uh-huh. the other one is that the Irish are somehow not clever. Right. And we can't live with that one. Okay. Because we've got more Nobel Prize winners per head of population than anywhere else in the world. And uh, we have a great welcome. Irish people have a great welcome. Well, think and of the impact Ireland has had. How many Irish, mm. how many people in, in Ireland? On the whole island, yeah. uh, six million. And think of the impact you've had in the world, uh, standing up against countries with ten mm. times that population. For that size, yeah. So now, who are the rivals of Ireland? When you, when you have jokes about other countries and cultures, uh, who do you see as your sibling rivalry? Our sibling rivalry would be with the Scots, because they're our brothers, our Celtic brothers, mm-hmm. the Welsh to an extent, uh, even though we're brothers with the Scottish, because he's, us and the Scottish speak the same language, Gaelic. We don't have that same language connection with the Welsh. I didn't so know that. So uh, the Irish and the Scottish are closer, actually. Yeah, so we'd have a closer tie with the All Scots. Right. But at the same time, we love to beat them in rugby. So there's a real, you know, you always want to get sure. one over on your sibling. Now, of course, the old enemy then we share with the Scots is the English. Ironically, you don't really hear too many Englishmen jokes in Ireland because it'd be a sensitive subject because our history with them is not all that jokey or fun. Right. But in Ireland, we joke about ourselves. Uh, tell, tell me a joke about yourselves and a joke about Welsh, Scottish, and Irish together. Is there one you can share? Yeah, I've a good one about uh, Irish, Scottish, English. Mm-hmm. It's not actually a joke. It's a quote by George Orwell. Mm-hmm. Kind of sums it up. He said, the English are not happy unless they're miserable. The Irish are not at peace unless they're at war. And the Scots are not at home unless they're abroad. Boy, that's thought-provoking. So There's yeah, some there truth to that. <laughs> Barry, did you have another one? Stephen mentioned the neighbours, you know, our rivals, our neighbours. Right. And the closest one, of course, is England. And a common question is, what's the English impression of the Irish? Yeah. And they always look at us with a kind of a bit of a puzzlement, you know. Winston Churchill summed that up. He said, we have always found the Irish a bit odd. They refuse to be English. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. A bit odd. They refuse to be English. And we speak the English language. I know we have Gaelic, but everyone right. in Irish speaks the English language. But we don't speak the Queen's English. We speak Hiberno-English. Ireland is full of slang terms and, yeah. and doublespeak. When you're in Ireland, what are the sports passions? We have all sorts of footballs. Gaelic football is the big one. And then there's soccer, which is played in all the towns and cities and is growing rapidly. And rugby is big in certain areas. Horse racing. So Gaelic football, rugby, soccer, and hurling also. Hurling, of course, yeah. So that's four of these indigenous stadium ball mm-hmm. games. Yeah. Uh, which ones are most popular? In terms of the audiences, you'd have uh, Gaelic football, probably number one, and rugby and hurling, second. The soccer attendances tend not to be that big in Ireland because everyone sort of goes over to watch the games in England where there's mm. a better league. But horse racing's good. That's one mm. area where we punch way above our weight. Yeah. And that's a great experience for a tourist to go oh, check yeah. out, the, go to the races. Yeah. When you go to the stadium, we have a, a beer and a, and a hot dog. What, what do you, what's uh, the food? They don't serve beer at an Irish stadium. They don't? That wouldn't work out. Yeah, Spike Milligan said about, you know, about drink, he said, uh, some people die of thirst, but the Irish are born with a thirst. So That's know. a natural thing for the Irish. Well, that contributes to this whole image, and it is, it is part of it. When you go to Ireland, you do notice there's a lot of focus put on pubs and beer, what part of your country is most profoundly Irish? Is there one place that is classic Irish and cl- in, the, in the pure accent? Myself, I, I love uh, Kerry, and I would say the real capital of Kerry is Dingle, out really? on the west coast of Ireland. I would say if you want to go somewhere classically Irish, just not too touristy, mm-hmm. genuine, great welcome, Dingle. Yeah, I think Barry's right there. I think, of course... If this program was broadcast in Ireland, now you'd have thousands of callers saying, yeah, yeah. it should be Carlo or Donegal. or yeah. Everywhere is quintessentially Irish. Mm-hmm. Even the places that tourists think aren't very Irish, they're still very Irish. That's the great thing of being Irish. We're such a little uh, diverse nation. 
you are, there is a lot of diversity in the yeah, small island, but you're saying the southwest tip is where you get sort of the quintessence of yeah, island. But, but it's important, to, like you were hinting out there, being an island, anyone who ever came from Ireland came from somewhere. So we're a melting pot of Vikings, Celts, English, Normans, Spanish, French. Gotcha. There's a melting pot of DNA, and we, that's why we got such a welcome as well. Uh, that comes with a welcome, because people have always been coming mm. and going. Coming and going. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Barry Maloney and Stephen McPhillamy about what is unique about Ireland and how to become a temporary local. One of the great things about traveling in Ireland is it's so easy to connect with the people, and anybody who goes to Ireland that wants to connect to the people and doesn't have a lot of money should certainly figure about staying in the bed and breakfast, because mm-hmm. that's where you're mm-hmm. part of a family. Now, Barry and Stephen, if you're staying in an Irish family, what's a good way for an American to um, make the Irish family feel so thankful that they've got these American guests? Is there anything we can do to endear ourselves to our Irish host? The normal perspective coming in is for Americans to talk about their Irish roots. You've got to reverse that connection. And you've got to ask the host about cousins of theirs that are in America. And that makes the connection. It's like, you know, in Ireland we always do that, you know. I'm visiting Stephen up in Derry and I'll get talking to one of Stephen's friends and before we know it, we'll realize we have a common friend who lives in Galway, you know? And that's, that will really open the connection. And, and there it, are a lot of Irish in America. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's, everybody's got the family. Cousin extended. in Boston and Chicago. And, that's a fun thing to talk about. Stephen, what would you recommend for somebody who's staying in a and b that wants to endear themselves to their host? Well, I was going to say that if you went in and used a bit of the local vocabulary, you know, if you were to go in and ask somebody what's the crack mm-hmm. or how's the crack today, that might endear you. But at the same time then, Irish people generally don't like when Americans come over and start putting on an Irish accent. It's like a, yeah, it's like somebody trying to talk hip to the kids today yeah. who's 50 yeah, years old. It just or doesn't sound right. It tends to sound more like a pirate or somebody from mm-hmm. Pakistan. Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> It just doesn't sound Irish. So that, that's maybe so one. So don't issue. worry about picking up some sort of a, yeah, a, a, probably, a slang. I was go- yeah, probably better off not to worry about picking up. But if up you're a in slang. a pub, you should know a few Gaelic words to uh, toast to people or something. Yes, yeah, so I'm always always uh, pays to be able to say slancha at least to say it properly. It also helps if you can order the drinks and pronounce them properly. Like uh, we have a beer called Smithix, which looks like it's Smithwicks and right. very popular beer. But as soon as Americans would go in and ask for a Smithwicks, which is how it's spelled. Then you can see all the Irish in the back chuckling and chortling, pointing at them. So get your pronunciations done. That's yeah. a very good idea. And to be able to say thank you and, and cheers yeah. in, in Gaelic is a good idea. Yeah, slanches, cheers, and gormahagat means thanks. And gormahagat. Go down well with the most people. All right. Well, to both of you, slancha and gormahagat. Gormahagat. Slancha. No matter how you look at it, Belfast offers a different flavor of Ireland when you venture into the Irish part of the UK in Ulster. Up next, a hometown guide from Belfast takes your calls at 877-333-RICK as we get acquainted with another side of Ireland. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. One of the fun things about travel is getting acquainted with a country's culture and even its little rivalries. Scottish tour guide Anne Doig lets us in on an old saying that does reinforce some of the stereotypes inside the British Isles, but it does it with a gentle sense of humour. There's a little poem illustrates our humour, I guess, but it starts with, First you have the Welsh, who prey on their knees and on their neighbours. Then you have the Irish, who don't know what they want, but they'll fight you for it anyway. Then you have the Scots, who keep the Sabbath, and everything else they can get their hands on. And then you have the English, who are a self-made race, which absolves Almighty God of a great deal of responsibility. (laughs) After Dublin, Ireland's second city is the capital of Northern Ireland in the UK. It's Belfast, which started the 20th century as an industrial powerhouse. When the city launched the ill-fated Titanic in 1912, it had the largest shipbuilding facilities in the entire world. A popular new Titanic museum opened in 2012 to celebrate the centennial of the ship's famous sinking. Belfast became known for its bloody sectarian troubles in the latter half of the 20th century. 
But since the Good Friday Accord was signed back in 1998, Belfast has gained stature as a place for international investment and as a popular visitor attraction. Susie Miller was raised in Belfast. She's reported for BBC Ulster for many years and now leads tours of her hometown, including sites connected to the infamous Titanic, on which her grandfather worked and died. Susie, welcome. Pleasure to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. I didn't mean to say celebrate the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, but it is quite a big event in Belfast. Yeah, how about commemorate? That's maybe a better way of putting it. That's that's what we did in 2012. New big centre opened in the Titanic Quarter, which was designed to, to draw people in and tell them the story of why the ship was built in Belfast. A lot of people don't know that, that the Titanic right. was actually built in Belfast 100 years ago. Belfast was the centre for shipbuilding. It was the biggest shipbuilders in the world. But Titanic is the only one anybody remembers, right. obviously, because of the story. So you built other mammoth ships. We did, yes. Harland and Wolf, the shipbuilders, they moved into more industrial ships than huge, big oil platforms. In fact, right now in Belfast, there's a big Brazilian oil platform, massive big thing. It looks like a big Christmas tree, which is being refurbished underneath the big cranes. So this heavy industrial heritage carries on in Belfast. It does, but to put it in some sort of context, 100 years ago, Harland and Wolf employed something like 30,000 people. Now it's about 500. Okay, so it's not quite the glory days of Belfast shipbuilding, but when you think about the Titanic, I understand there was the Titanic had a sister ship. There were two sisters, yes. Olympic was the first one, Uh and then the Titanic, and then Britannic. What was the Britannic's first name? She was actually to be called Gigantic, first of all. But when Titanic went down, they thought, ah, let's give this Gigantic a different... It just doesn't quite work. It It seemed a bit grandiose after what had happened to Titanic. And you know, the thing about what happened to Titanic was that after that, Belfast didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about Titanic. Right. Because there was a sense of perhaps shame, embarrassment. We had built this wonderful ship, biggest ship in the world, most expensive ship, all these people traveling on it. 13 days after she sailed out of Belfast Loch, she was at the bottom of the ocean. 13 men, days? 13 days, oh yes. Yeah, she sailed goodness. to Southampton and then she so started. So the pride and joy of Belfast. All gone within less than two weeks. Three years to build it. And people just couldn't deal with it. I suppose it's the Celtic way. Push it under the carpet and don't think about it. So it's really only within recent years that we've started to say, hey, you know, we built this thing. When the big movie came out, James Cameron's movie came out in the 90s, we realized that the rest of the world had this huge appetite for all things to do with Titanic. Here we were sitting on the backstory. And not sharing it with anyone. So it's been a gradual process. And since more people have started to come up north and see what's there, we've developed this Titanic industry. Why not? And it's probably a huge tourism boom to go up and see the the dry dock where the Titanic was built. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, all the hardware is still there. It hasn't been touched over the years. So you can see all these places that are so significant. Now, when I come into Belfast, the first thing I see is Samson and Goliath. Yeah. Tell us about Samson and Goliath and what they mean to you as a Belfast person. Samson and Goliath are two huge, big cranes, and they belong to Harland and Wolf, so they have H and W on the top of them. So that's the the nickname is Samson and Goliath. And they just, they're towering. They're like skyscrapers, but they're they're cranes. Yes, they're massive. And they move. They move up and down. So people sometimes use them as a reference point for where they are in the city, come back the next day and go, where'd the cranes go? (laughs) (laughs) Because they're working, you know? You know, and interesting, I was just in Glasgow, and I've just been in Antwerp and just been in Hamburg, and one of my themes lately is to recognize the industrial age powerhouses that were kind of second cities, a little mm-hmm. bit rust belt, yeah. and then they're coming back in. Is there a sense that Belfast was rusty, but now it's getting rejuvenated? Yes, in some ways. There's a lot of tech industries in Belfast, for example. There's a, that, the science park down where that dock you mentioned is, where Titanic was finished out. So, yes, but, you know, it's still a little bit rusty around the edges. All of those heavy industries, and I can't emphasize enough how industrial Belfast was. It was pretty much the second city mm-hmm. when the British Empire was at its peak. It's all gone. It's all gone. We have no manufacturing industry to speak of now. Hmm. However, there is a great sense of pride in the place. And when you go to Belfast, you can easily find yourself sightseeing beautiful buildings and and monuments and so on that come from those glory days. That's it. If you look at the City Hall, I mean, it was built around the year 1900. Mm -hmm. It is glorious. And if you go to the fancy saloons and the the parks, this is all from the Victorian age, isn't it? When Belfast was really up there. They really are statement buildings. They're showing off, hey, look at us. You know, we're important in this part of the British Empire and we want to show off. So yeah, the City Hall is one of my favorites. It's just absolutely beautiful. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling through Northern Ireland right now with a Belfast journalist and a Belfast tour guide, Susie Miller. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Lynn is on the phone from Olympia in Washington. Lynn, thanks for your call. You're welcome, Rick. Do you have a comment or a question about Belfast for Susie? I do. Our family's going to be visiting there in a few months, and I'd like to know, number one, what sites, sounds like Titanic is one of them, do we not want to miss in Belfast? And because we won't have a car, what are the transportation options for us? Okay, Lynn. Yeah, you won't need a car. Belfast is a really workable city, both from just walking and from public transport. The other thing you'll find when you get there is everybody is so happy to help you. Ask any local on the street. If they see you pouring over a map, they'll be straight over. Can I be of assistance? They'll even offer you a lift in the car. So that's up to you whether you want to do that or not, but you will have no problem getting your way around. So you're right. Yeah, Titanic, I suppose, is on everybody's minds at the moment. And that's a good thing to go and see good structured thing. Beyond that, you know, there's nothing to stop you getting out of the city a little bit, going up to the north coast. The Causeway Coast is about 60 miles away. Again, well served by public transport. And that is a really pretty place. You're on the Atlantic coast. Uh, within the city itself, the Ulster Museum is lovely. It's set in a parkland called Botanic Gardens. They've got an old palm house there, which predates Kew Gardens. Palm House is one of those glass and iron structures from exactly. 100 years ago, and it's a, yes. a, a garden indoors, kind of a tropical climate right there in Belfast. It is. It's where we go to warm up. Like, like Kew Gardens in London. <laughs> yeah. It is a delightful place to go. The whole garden in that Ulster Museum that, that Susie's talking about. Susie, when I was in the Ulster Museum, I enjoyed looking at the history because... Everybody gets to share their history from their perspective. And it gave the potato famine more of a British-friendly spin compared to the spin you'd get (laughs) if you went to a museum in the Republic. Is there anything to that when you went to the Ulster Museum? It's such a hard thing for museums to interpret. Anything to do with the conflict between sort of British traditions and Irish traditions is is very, very difficult to But if you go to the Republic, you're going to get just the Republic-Irish narrative. And it is worth getting a little bit of the British uh, narrative. And you'll likely get that in Belfast at the Ulster Museum. You will indeed, yes. It's definitely worth stopping by. They've got treasure from Spanish galleons. Would you believe that? Who expects to see that in Ireland? So, you know, it's worth a visit. Definitely a rainy day place to go. And a lot of that treasure seems to was spent on the Crown Liquor Saloon. Describe this incredible saloon that you see right downtown. <laughs> the Crown Liquor Saloon is the only bar in the world which is owned by the National Trust. Now, the National Trust, for those of you who don't know, is like a heritage all over the UK. They usually preserve like stately homes and things like that in your sort of Downton Abbey type places. But here in the middle of Belfast is this bar. It's tiled, mosaiced, it's got stained glass windows and it's absolutely gorgeous. Oh, it's Victoriana like over the top, isn't really it? really is, yes. Uh-huh. And they pour the best Guinness of anywhere. And they got snugs, these little cozy corners that you can sit down with your partner and have a drink. That's it, yes. Well, you'll normally get sat upon by about 12 more tourists because, you know, those snugs are in demand. So you won't have it to yourself for very long. <laughs> But, you know, funny story, they just uh, forgot to renew their liquor license in the Crown, so they were out of business for a couple of weeks, but they're back up and running. That's the National Trust. They aren't going to think about that. Oh, my goodness. So don't worry. It's back up there pouring its lovely Guinness. There you go, Lynn. I hope that's helpful. It is. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call. Wendy's on the line in San Jose, California. Wendy, thanks for calling in. Oh, thank you. Hi, Susie. We're going to be... um in uh, Belfast, traveling with a couple of friends, and we're wondering if there's uh, any place to visit uh, that has to do with the uh, very popular Game of Thrones show that's on HBO. I understand that maybe there's a studio there where it was filmed, or any filming locations that might be available. Yes, to both of those. There is a studio actually down in Titanic Quarter, and that's where they've shot the interior stuff for the last four seasons of Game of Thrones. Used to be in the old days, you could walk past and you would see people in sort of costumes. We used to see Sean Bean, the actor, standing outside before he got beheaded, I think, in series one. But they've really sort of clamped down on what you can see around there now. You'll see scenery and props outside, but little else. However, there is a specialist tour that you can do, uh, which takes you around some of those Game of Thrones locations. Some of them are in forests, some is hmm. up on the north coast, up near Carrick Reed Rope Bridge. So there's lots of ways you can do that tour within one day. Have you heard of the Dark Hedges, Wendy? No. That's one of the locations that they use. It's like trees overlapping a road. 
and it's absolutely oh, stunning. Yeah. It's like something out of a, a Nordic troll story or something. So that's worth a look. But when you take that Game of Thrones tour, that's one of the locations you'll visit. And the guide will explain and even play bits of the show so you know what you're looking at. There you go, Wendy. Thanks for the call. Oh, thank you so very much. Happy travels. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Susie Miller about Belfast. And, you know, we've been talking almost the entire interview here without mentioning safety. Is it safe for tourists to go to Belfast? I mean, it's famous for, infamous for the troubles of the past. Mm-hmm. What's the current situation for visitors? You're 100% safe. You know, don't walk around with your, your wallet tucked out of your back pocket like any other city, but mm-hmm. you're never going to get mugged or anything like that in Belfast. But I think what you're, you're talking about, you know, is a bomb going to go off, that sort of thing? No, those days are behind us. If there are any sort of bomb warnings, the army are there, they defuse them, the area's cleared, nothing happens. Do you know, the other week there was a bomb scare in the middle of Belfast city centre. And I was actually reporting on it for the BBC. Turned out to be a hoax, but really what struck me was that life went on as normal. A hundred yards down the street, people were out partying. They were even actually taking selfies with a little robot that goes to defuse and have a look at the bomb. No, that's a different age altogether then. (laughs) Isn't it? So thank goodness Ireland has figured this out. I'm I'm sure there's a few challenges ahead, but generally the troubles are a thing of the past in Ireland, and that's an inspiration for other nations and countries that are dealing with sectarian squabbles. Mm -hmm. As a tourist today, is it still interesting to go into the sectarian neighborhoods to go up Falls Road or you know, to go into the Protestant communities and the Catholic communities? Yes, definitely, because there's so much that mm-hmm. you can see. Uh, we like to paint our opinions on the walls. So you have the very famous political murals from both uh, the and Republic... And those are still there, because oh, those yeah. are some of the most stirring street art I've seen anywhere in Europe are the powerful murals mm-hmm. that show the passion and the history of these two communities, and that they've sorted all this out is really quite a triumph. Yep, and you get them on both sides. And, you know, very interesting that they take in not only Irish history, but they'll bring in Cuba, and they'll bring in Palestine, and they'll bring in Guatemala, you know, as if we hadn't enough of our own stuff. Celebrating people in solidarity (laughs) with people's movements all over the place. That's it. So, But basically, if tourists are interested, they can, using discretion, common sense, go into the Catholic areas and go into the working-class Protestant areas, enjoy the art on the walls, Mm -hmm. talk to people, and uh, be not taking any needless risks. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. Most of these are on main roads, so you're never going into neighborhoods where you're stuck in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, people are very used to tourists coming up, taking photographs, asking them questions. In fact, in the Protestant tradition particularly, they're very glad that you've taken the time to try to understand their point of view. Very nice. Susie, in my memory, when, when I go to Belfast, we've got these shared black taxis that are for, you know, poor families and working class families that yeah. don't have a car. Mm-hmm. Describe the black taxi service. It's sort of like a communal taxi, isn't it? Yeah, they tend to go into one area or another, you know, depending on whether it's nationalist or, or unionist. And uh, everybody just piles on in there. It's, it's very confusing for people who are used to taking London black cabs because they look exactly the same. When you jump into one of those cabs in London, it's yours and it takes you to your destination. You jump into one of those in Belfast and you're sharing it with as many other people. You're sharing it with strollers. You're sharing it with people's cream buns that they've got out of the bakery. I heard a terrible story of somebody sitting on the cream buns recently. <laughs> And these taxis, they stop at the bus stops, so they're just right. like a sort of public so transport. So you've you got a big black cab. I mean, we know them from traditionally in London, and you mm-hmm. can fit eight people in them probably. About that. And then they're very cheap. They're designed for working class people getting into town that can't afford a car and probably don't have a car. Yeah. And uh, they go into the different neighborhoods. You mentioned nationalist and unionist, and just as if that's part of your life. Of course, yeah. we have to think about that. So mm-hmm. unionists would be Catholic families that would be inclined to like a union of Ireland Whereas nationalists would be no, um, no. okay. So what is a unionist? Oh, the way around. Yeah, okay. th- these are all handy labels, really, for our political viewpoints. But unionists want to maintain the union with the United ah, okay. Kingdom, there okay? And then nationalists want the nation of Ireland to be one. The other handles we use are Republican for that same nationalist. Republicans would want what? They want uh, to be part of the Irish Republic. Yeah, exactly. And not necessarily Catholic, but to be free from London. Yes, yes, autonomous. You know, okay, that, that Ireland as, as one island. island should be one, all right. of the counties, no such thing as Northern and Ireland. And a nationalist it? would be... Same thing. Same thing. Same and then thing. the unionist appreciate the union with Northern Ireland and London. Correct. Like United Kingdom. Yes, that sort exactly. Of thing. Yes. Also known as loyalists because they're very loyal to the, the Queen in particular. If you drive up the Shankill Road, the main thoroughfare through loyalist Belfast, you'll see loads of reference to the Queen and the royal family. And this is powerful stuff. And if you're there and you want to go into the um, 
Republican part, and you go to the nation, the Milltown Cemetery. Yes, that's where the, the Republican plot is. That's where uh, people who were IRA volunteers who were perhaps killed in action, that's where they are honoured and buried. And it's been the scene of a lot of controversy over the years in itself. There was an attack on an IRA funeral in which more people were killed. It's very well renowned. But apart from that, it's just a regular cemetery. They're just regular people buried there and as well. And it's a beautiful cemetery, fascinating cemetery, beautiful view. And you mm-hmm. do have the Celtic cross tombstones that would be for the, the Catholic uh, yep. uh, martyrs that are there and so on. We always call it Catholics and Protestants, but it seems to me it's more economic and more fundamental than just it's, religious. Yeah, you know, it has so little to do with religion. I mean, none of these people who are out on the streets making a noise are going to church. So yes. it's really to do with cultural identity. It's whether you feel that your roots are in Ireland or whether you feel that you're English or Scottish and have come across. I mean, I, I my family were Scottish originally, so that's mm-hmm. my side of the divide. However, I don't really care, you know? Yeah, just your as family long was planted there generations ago, and today, you, uh-huh. you know, you're just living out your life just there. just part of the scenery, you know? Now, was there, a long time ago, there was a lot more money in the North, and the Republic was really a basket case economically, and mm-hmm. then they had the Celtic Tiger, and the Republic really, its economy was booming. Yeah. The gap in rich and poor between North and South, when that vanished, mm-hmm. did that take some of the fear away from figuring out how to get over the troubles, do you think? Do you know, yeah, I think it probably did. And as well as that, the influx of, of other nations like Polish and Latvian, Lithuanian, the fact that they all came and made their home in Ireland uh, when the European borders were opened. And that kind of diluted the whole situation. Now, that's interesting because there was 100,000 Polish workers in the Republic of Ireland at, at one point, I understand. That's I mean, right. They had yeah. a lot of guest workers coming in because of the booming economy in Ireland. And with this affluence and with this uh, more cosmopolitan kind of uh, mix of people, mm-hmm. people are realizing, hey, violence is not the way. Definitely. Susie Miller, thank you so much for sharing with us a little understanding of Belfast, and it's certainly important when you're planning a trip to Ireland to remember, Belfast is a world-class city. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. When you're traveling, you can find out when other stations air travel with Rick Steves. Look online for our affiliate listings with Listen Live links. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.